This episode of New Politics was released on the 24th of June, 2023, and produced on the land of the Wangal and Wajak people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, we'll look at what the Australian Greens are doing with the government's Housing Future Fund. The Voice of Parliament No campaign is attracting some very strange alliances. Peter Dutton has a makeover, but will it work? Jackie Lambie sends the ADF to the International Criminal Court. And the Reserve Bank's plan to reduce inflation by increasing unemployment. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis. Card sharp. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription, but whether it's a subscription or whether you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a t-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. It was hard to match all the drama that we had last week in federal politics, but there's still enough drama going on to make it all seem quite interesting. And this week, the focus of attention was on the Housing Australia Future Fund legislation, and it's been delayed in the Senate until the 16th of October. The Labor government's agenda to implement the $10 billion future fund for social housing could have been passed by the Australian Greens and two other senators, more than likely David Pocock and Jackie Lambie. But the Greens and the Liberal and the National parties voted to delay the legislation. And this is in the middle of a national housing crisis. And Parliament does exist so that these sorts of issues can be worked out and services can be delivered quickly. But this tactic, in my opinion, is hard to justify. We've either got a housing crisis or we haven't. And if we have, it's best to get this program underway as soon as possible. I do think that the housing fund is not great policy. Basing it on the results of a future investment is a a risky proposition because good investments go bad. Bad investments go worse. And the Australian government shouldn't need to invest to make money. There's a decent tax income stream. There's uh, other income streams that they can use. In the absolute worst case, they could print more money, I suppose. That has perhaps knock-on effects in terms of uh, inflation and the value of the dollar, etc. But housing is a right. So I felt that they should have come up with a better way of funding this plan. And as I understand it, not enough houses are being built under it. Now, on the other side, the Greens have probably been outplayed and forced into a corner. They've had to side with the coalition who are, who were never going to support any government proposition, even if it was to give each coalition member 22 public houses that they could set their own rent on. They'd never support any kind of public or any government solution. And I will say too with the Greens, it's the probably the broadest of the political parties in terms of its membership. So there's a lot of interests and a lot of ideas and a lot of ideology to balance against each other. I'm not here to slam the Greens. I think that they're trying to do the work of the angels, but they're working in the house of the devil. (laughs) And they may have been outplayed by more experienced politicians. It's going to be tricky because we now have had crucial housing legislation delayed by five months, which 
is going to be easy for Labor to blame the Greens because had they supported us, we'd have had shovels in the ground in six weeks and houses built after about six to 12 weeks. Now, I'm not sure how possible that is because council approvals have to be passed through, builders have to be found, land has to be confirmed, etc. There is a process. So I'd have thought that they'd have found a way to compromise Well, you'd hope so, and we've said this before, and you've just said it now, David, that yes, the Housing Australia Future Fund program seems to be inadequate. It is scheduled to build between 2,000 and 5,000 dwellings per year when 640,000 dwellings are needed right now, but it's best to start on this and add to this with either more pressure on the government or look at other measures that can be introduced. And as we found out when we spoke to Cathy Callahan last week from Shelter New South Wales, it's a matter of looking at all measures, not just one aspect or another. It's a matter of looking at everything holistically. And my feeling is that the Greens have probably extracted as much as they can from the government at this stage. But I think once you've gone past your ambit claims and you're not achieving those, well, it's starting to get into the area of political games. And fair enough, that's what politicians do, but they're also there to resolve problems. And housing across Australia is a problem that needs resolution now as well as into the future. But politically, we can see what the Greens are doing. They're pushing hard on this to attract left-leaning Labor voters. And Max Chandler-Mather, he's the one who's at the forefront of this campaign by the Australian Greens. He actually used to be a member of the Labor Party and he was a trade union organiser. So he'd have a good idea about what the typical Labor Party member would be thinking about this. But ultimately, they're delaying a critical program by also siding with the coalition. And that's never really a good look for the Greens. But more importantly, they're holding up a program that can start providing much needed housing to those in need. Yeah, without sounding like uh, a rusted on Labor supporter, something is better than nothing. And plans can be expanded once they've started. It's tricky because Labor have come up with a plan and a policy that does go some way to solving a major problem. It doesn't go all the way, but it does go some way. The Greens, it has wedged them in that a lot of people are very angry with the Greens because they're, they're saying if the Greens are so in favour of public housing, why aren't they helping get it in? Now, of course, the Greens are saying we are helping getting in because this is a terrible policy and we want something better and we want proper solutions. And that's not unreasonable, let's be fair. But in terms of the public relations of it, there's a section of the public who see that the Greens are being intransigent for intransigence sake and are not prepared to compromise and in fact really don't want any housing and they're just posturing. I don't think that's the case. But if they don't come up with some solution or find a way to improve the solution that they've stopped, it's going to cost them in the long run. And when the media gets sick of attacking the Labor government, they usually start up on the Greens. And there have been a few media stories that have started building up that narrative against the Australian Greens, even though it's also the coalition that has blocked this legislation as well. The Greens block on the Albanese government's social housing fund has backfired in a big way. The party now accused of being heartless towards the homeless by denying new housing while people sleep rough through winter. One MP says they ought to be ashamed of themselves. 
Yesterday, the government's $10 billion plan for 30,000 affordable homes was stopped by the Greens, sparking outrage today. They want to build their profile. We want to build more homes. They should be bloody ashamed of themselves. They have no social conscience. And that is the truth of the matter when it comes to the Greens. There was one glimmer of hope. The Greens are prepared to compromise. But at Waterloo today, the four-month delay was slammed by one peak body saying 8,000 dwellings could have started on sites like this. It's about 25,000 Australians are going to have to sit and wait if they do nothing until October. They've got approval for 74 social housing dwellings here. One third of residents on site will be women and children escaping domestic and family violence. And another 2,000 disadvantaged on their waiting list. And of course the media is probably doing the bidding of the building industry in this case rather than looking at the needs of the homeless and people in need but it will be interesting to see if this pressure keeps building up. And the other issue is that the Labor government, they promised this at the last election. This is their agenda and this is their political ambition. The Senate should be the House of Review and over the past few months amendments and improvements to the proposed legislation have been made at the behest of the Greens, but we haven't got the legislation yet. And the Greens have got 15 seats out of the total of seats of 227 in Parliament. They're not the opposition, and the Labor Party is the government, and they've got 104 of those 227 seats in Parliament and a majority in the lower house. Now, I know that that's not exactly how it all works in Parliament, and Labor does win quite a few of those seats off the back of Greens' preferences, but just providing this information to give some context to all of this, but Parliament should be all about working towards solutions, and we're not getting that at the moment. And of course, the Greens have to represent the wishes of their constituents, but this is how compromises operate. Neither side gets everything that they want, but you can't have a situation where a minor party gets everything that it wants and the government of the day gets nothing, especially when there's a lot of people who are depending on this package going through. I'm a bit perplexed. I'm happy to talk to any Greens supporters or Greens politicians out there to clarify things. You know, certainly don't want to mislead anybody's position or misread anybody's position. I guess the thing that everyone can agree on, except maybe one nation, (laughs) is that we need to fix the rental crisis. We need to fix the housing crisis and we need to make sure as many people as possible, which should be as close to 100% as we can get, are uh, housed and safe and warm or cool in the summer and able to function as human beings. There's too many people who shouldn't be living in temporary accommodation, and that's across all demographics. I think we need solutions, and we need them very quickly. There's also been talk of a double dissolution election and the media always likes to pump this sort of stuff up. A bill has to be knocked back twice by the Senate to create the circumstances for a double dissolution election and it hasn't even reached the first step yet. The bill has been delayed, not rejected by the Senate. So there's still a long way to go before we're getting any sort of double dissolution election trigger. So that's not in play at the moment. But I do think that the 
Greens do have to be careful here because they run the risk of damaging themselves for blocking a crucial government program. And of course, the government runs the risk of damaging itself for not increasing the amount of funding for this program and not making it as adequate as it could have been. And I think you can forget about the coalition on social housing because they're quite busy damaging themselves anyway, and they're not really the party of social housing anyway. So they'd be very happy to block any sort of program like this. But it's also set up a hostile debate between the government and the Greens with the usual name calling and slagging off of each other. And what the Greens showed in the Senate, Mr Speaker, is they care more about retweets than renters. They care more about TikTok than housing stock. When When it comes to the crunch, Mr Speaker, with all of the flowery speeches and all the rhetoric in there in this place, when it actually came to the crunch, when the Greens had the opportunity to work with Labor to build more social and affordable homes or to side with the coalition of cookers which sit opposite, they chose the coalition of cookers. And all of this is part of the theatrics between Labor and the Greens. They'll eventually kiss and make up because they really do have to work with each other, whether they like it or not. But I, I just think that this is one of the worst hills for the Greens to go and die on. And there have been suggestions that the Greens compromise on the 43% emissions target by 2030 when they actually wanted 75%, only for the Labor government to start opening up more and more coal mines. So, so maybe they don't want to compromise on social housing because of these issues. They've been burned in the past on legislation that they've passed. But even still, when you weigh up all of these different issues, all of these different factors, all the different politics that are in play, I still think that delaying this program by at least five months doesn't seem to make much sense all round. It's the delay that is the problem. And the other thing too is that they are a separate political party from Labor and they need to have their own policies, they need to have their own philosophies, they need to have their own identity. And that's always something that I think a lot of people forget, even putative supporters of them that they're not labor light, they're not the alternative you go to and you can't bring yourself to join Labor, but they've got all the same policies so I can join the the Greens, you know. They are a separate entity with strong and committed members who, like most of the Labor Party and some of the Liberal Party, are striving to do their absolute best to make Australia a better place. So I hope that things can be sorted more quickly than not. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon. The legislation for the referendum for a voice to parliament has been approved and all that means is that a referendum can now be held but no date has actually been set for it. And there's still an outside possibility that all of this could be put on hold if the Prime Minister Anthony Albanese feels that there is a chance that it might not be successful. 
But this is all just the first step and it's almost like every single inch of progress has to be celebrated because there hasn't been much progress on this issue in the past. Here's the moment the legislation was approved in the Senate. I declare that the Senate has passed the Constitutional Alteration Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Voice 2023 by an absolute majority. Senator Thorpe. The ayes 52 and the noes 19. Yeah. I call the clerk. A bill and act to alter the constitution to recognise the First Peoples of Australia by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. And the voice that you can hear in the background is Senator Lydia Thorpe, and she's heckling because she plans to actually campaign against the voice of Parliament and has decided that it's best to team up with the Liberal Party, the National Party and with One Nation to support the no case. You know, I was in negotiation with the government and I thought that they would act in good faith. The negotiation points were to implement the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody the federal levers within those recommendations, also the federal levers in the recommendations to the Bringing Them Home report. They're two areas that I've been talking about for a very long time. They're, they're three decades old and they have self-determining solutions from the people themselves. So the government have made up all the excuses of why they can't do that and so they didn't come good. So. <laughs> You know, they, they could have shown good faith, at least to save people's lives here and now, and they haven't done that. The, the no pamphlet, absolutely I'll be there. I mean, I'm looking forward to it. You know, we're going to have to sit in a room with people that we don't normally get along with. So looking forward to that journey. And we will continue to fight for treaty. We ain't given in to this colonial occupation and we will maintain that our sovereignty has never been ceded. Thank you very much. And of course, these are all excellent reasons to outline. And we've always maintained that the voice to parliament isn't perfect and it doesn't go far enough. There should be negotiations for a treaty, reparations, pay the rent campaign or whatever else there needs to be. But the voice to parliament is on the table and you just have to take what you can in politics and then move on to the next part of your agenda. Yeah, Lydia Thorpe identifies herself with the black sovereignty movement who have argued that the, the voice is just really a bunch of white people telling black people what to do again. That's not the opinion, as far as I can tell, of the majority of Indigenous uh, communities and Indigenous leaders. But I can certainly understand why you might think that. The coalition is trying to wedge it. It is for their own political survival that it needs to be defeated. If it is defeated, it won't hurt the Labor Party as much as it will hurt the coalition. If it passed, it will be a real feather in the cap for the Labor Party. So the coalition are writing big dollars on it and the hope that they can have a prominent Indigenous woman, or a couple in this case, on their side to, one, deflect allegations of being racist. Well, how can we be racist? Because, look, we have Lydia Thorpe and others on our side, Warren Mundine, but it creates a problem for Lydia Thorpe, who was elected as a Green, as you said, left the Green Party because she realised it wasn't her thing and is now trying to maintain a prominent position in the Senate. I think 
she's going to pay down the track if it doesn't get up and they do push for a treaty the very people who she has helped are not going to help her get treaty whatsoever so you hope that she knows what she's doing and of course you can work with people on the opposite side in politics and people that are diametrically opposite to your own viewpoint on life but only if you can leverage their actions into something towards achieving your own agenda and in politics you give something up so you can achieve something else but in this case by working on the no campaign Lydia Thorpe and Indigenous Australia is not getting anything in return unless there's been some sort of deal going on behind the scenes that we're not aware of and the Liberal Party the National Party and definitely one nation as you mentioned david they're not going to support a treaty they're not going to support a pay the rent campaign so siding with some of the most odious characters and political parties in politics to help achieve their agenda and achieve none of your own agenda in return that just seems to be a very strange political strategy in a week which one nation has been targeted as one of the world's most prominent hate groups too Politics makes strange bedfellows, as the old saying goes, but it may not end well for anybody in this case. At least with the Greens housing bill delay, we can see what they're trying to achieve. They're trying to make an existing policy better and use some of those issues for political gain for the Greens movement. But this strategy to oppose the voice of Parliament when there's nothing else on offer from the government isn't the best path to take at this stage and there will have to be a treaty with First Nations people. It was promised by Bob Hawke in 1988 and then completely forgotten about and it's been a long-term ambition for many Indigenous people for a long, long time. Land was stolen in 1788 and again in 1901 and that's a situation that has to be resolved. Pay the rent, I think that's a worthwhile project possibly, reparations, whatever needs to be done in these areas. If that's what First Nations people are supportive of and that's what we need to work towards and for all of those people who are saying well you can't have a treaty and what good will it do well Victoria has a treaty process in place at the moment and that's advanced to the point where Indigenous people in Victoria are being elected to see who will represent them in treaty negotiations and the issue here is that if it's not completed during the time Daniel Andrews is in office or at least until the Labor government is in office in Victoria it might not end up happening so perhaps this is what the strategy is for Lydia Thorpe destroy the voice of parliament and work towards a treaty and I don't think that the voice of parliament and the treaty are mutually exclusive but for a treaty to start being negotiated you need a national political leader who wants to take this on like Daniel Andrews is doing in Victoria but it seems at this stage that national leader doesn't exist. As I understand it every nation in the world with an indigenous population has made treaties with them except Australia. Now, the quality of these treaties vary greatly. I know that in New Zealand there's a strong argument being that's been mounted against the Treaty of Waitangi, for example. But all treaties are ongoing negotiations. Every five years or every ten years, people get back together and say, okay, what's worked, what hasn't worked? Do we continue on as we have been? Do we change things? Power relationships change. Trade details change with Indigenous people. Maybe things improve and so the, the treaty that they have doesn't need to be as expensive. Maybe things got worse and so they need a stronger treaty. So I also think that the voice is 
probably not the ideal way, but it is a good way to get a treaty going, get the voice up, and then the the representatives in the voice can agitate for treaty with a lot of moral argument. It was promised in 1988. Uh, we've had the apology to parliament. We've, we've got some of the worst standard of living for Indigenous people. And as you said, it's time to pay the rent, which is ironic in the middle of a, a domestic rental crisis. But there you are. Maybe it's all a theme for Australia to think about. Go back, Noongar people, to the values of before. Gain strength from your culture, the spiritual dreaming war. Seek shelter from the vulture of colonial oppressors' law. For the presence of Yagan spirit, as Noongars unite once more. We listen to the stories as the elders again explain How your culture flourished before the Europeans came Find why it's important, your strength must never wane Noongas need the spiritual, like dry land needs rain Seek contemporary, traditional, come together on stage Guitars weeping, drummers thumping in anguish rage Her fear, frustration, escape the poet's cage While haunting digits echo deep from a forgotten age And Peter Dutton is going through that long process of an image makeover And like every other leader in politics, he's trying to make himself more appealing to the electorate John Howard did it before, straightening up his teeth and cutting his eyebrows a little bit. Anthony Albanese did a makeover as well. He stopped eating Italian cakes, lost a lot of weight and got himself a new set of glasses. And this is what politicians do in order to present themselves in the best possible way. Peter Dutton has already got himself a new set of glasses and he's just put out a mini documentary. It's a seven minute video of everyone saying how great he is, especially from his wife, Kiralee Dutton. I think what is special about Peter is his um, commitment to, to family, his, his love and his enjoyment of family. I feel very fortunate uh, to have three beautiful kids and married to a beautiful wife who's been successful in her own small business. Like most households now where both parents have to work, you've got to try and find that balance. You need to make sure that you're supporting each other. When he's home, his home life is, is very normal. He loves to go to the kids sporting matches. He loves to have friends over, family over. We love being outdoors at the farm, having the kids around. Very, very basic, quiet, homely things. What I would like Australians to know about Peter is his immense empathy and his immense kindness that he has for families and other groups in the community, children. He is very, very passionate about building a better life in a great country for all Australians. And again, this is what politicians always do. Scott Morrison had one of these documentaries in the lead up to the 2022 federal election. Anthony Albanese created one of these to establish his profile and leadership to the electorate. And these videos are an interesting study in semiotics and symbolism because every single frame in the video is analysed and critiqued from about 100 different angles. But the interesting part is that they keep pushing this idea that Peter Dutton has got immense empathy and immense kindness when he's displayed none of this during his political career. He's not displaying this with the voice to parliament. And a few people have suggested that if you have to go and produce a seven minute video of people saying what a nice guy you are, you're probably not a nice guy. It's a bit like being cool, isn't it? If you have to say it, then you're not. It could have been called, I guess, he's still not a monster in that they're really pushing the notion of he's a nice guy, he's a nice, empathetic, he's all of this. None of the reports I've heard from him have suggested this. 
as in from people who've met him, who've known him, who've worked with him. When John Howard was Prime Minister, there were people and left-leaning people who had worked with John Howard and who said he was a pleasant fellow. He he was always across the issue. He always listened to you. He may not agree with you, but he was always prepared to listen. George W. Bush, I'd heard people say that he was a much different person backstage than he was up front. And those were people who'd met him and worked with him at some length. Bob Hawke, who was probably a little bit more open about who he was. And I'll be fair here too, I don't mind that people present one thing to the camera and uh, present something slightly different behind the camera, provided there's a consistency there. That's okay. You, you need to protect yourself psychologically. You, you might be nervous, so you put on a performance rather than be yourself, inverted commas. But it was just a bizarre video. It's clear that the polling has shown that he as a person is not cutting through, despite any good points he might have. And I note that there weren't a lot of already existing good points. They didn't start with, well, we all know that he is this capable, intelligent man who has a searing intellect. It started, this is what Peter Dutton is like at home, which I thought was a very bizarre approach. But I think they're desperate. I think that his polling numbers are terrible and they're doing their best to try and raise those numbers. And whenever there's talk of Peter Dutton and immense empathy, all we need to do is remind the electorate that he walked out of the apology to the Stolen Generations in 2008, the African Gains commentary during the Victoria election in 2018, and a history of beating up on refugees and asylum seekers, the comment about water lapping on the door of Pacific Island nations, calling out those who disagree with him as dirty lefties and failing to support the voice to parliament. And yeah, it's all fine. And we're not even getting started on all the corruption that's going on. And that to me is not a sign of immense empathy. And I don't really care if Peter Dutton has got immense empathy with his family or with Kiralee Dutton saying that Peter Dutton is not a monster. We have to judge people in public life on their public actions. And no amount of spin or a seven-minute promotional video is going to change that perception of Peter Dutton. Now, you have to give full points for trying, I guess, but changing public perceptions of Peter Dutton would be a difficult gig for a PR firm, and this has got shades of the Jen and the Girls narrative that Scott Morrison promoted during the time that he was Prime Minister, and it worked for him to win one election, but that was about it. Peter Dutton is still hovering around the 17% of personal support, and the two-party preferred voting for the Liberal National Party is hovering between 42 and 45%, so he's not doing very well at all, and doing an image makeover is a start, but Peter Dutton also doesn't have too much time available to him to turn things around. The election's only a couple of years away. There'll be people who would be looking at his job thinking, he's not doing that terribly good a job in it, maybe I can do better, and we've had suggestions that, particularly somebody like Suzanne Lay, who's done a listening tour, which is usually one of the first steps you do to present your credentials for leadership. Although she hasn't presented a documentary video yet. I'm sure it's being made. Uh, she's just waiting for Baz Luhrmann to be free. If not an act of desperation, it was an act of obviousness, I think. It, it, you don't have to dig too deeply to see that this is a man who's starting to panic. Pauline Hansen came out yesterday and said that she thinks that the voice is going to get up. 
I wonder if the internal polling of the Liberal Party is showing that he's going to lose that referendum and that if he wants a shot at the Prime Ministership, he's got to hold on to the job for the next two years and then win the election, which is, a, I don't say impossible, but I do say it'll be a difficult job for him. And there's also a lot of problems for Peter Dutton in Victoria. And for a leader to have success on the federal level, you also need to have a successful political party at the state level. And Victoria has almost become like a permanent drag on the Liberal Party. And the polls for both at state level and for federal voting intentions in Victoria are around 39% for the Liberal Party, which means that it's 61% for the Labor Party. And the new opposition leader, John Pesuto, he's having a lot of problems down there as well. And we have reported in the past on the religious groups that have taken over key branches of the Liberal Party in Victoria, and that's by Mormons, Pentecostals and other right-wing conservative Christians. And there is a by-election in the seat of Warrandyte, and the Liberal Party has pre-selected Nicole Werner to run in the seat, and she's a Pentecostal preacher and activist. Now, there's nothing wrong with religious people being involved in politics, and we also have to remember that not all religious people are conservatives. There's some very radical and progressive religious people out there as well, but the problem arises when their views get represented in Parliament that far outweighs their numbers in the electorate. And here's a snippet of Nicole Werner. Suffering from a tyrant's socialist agenda that insists on teaching our kids woke crap in our education system, not to mention living under dictator dance, Victoria, over the past two years with unwarranted nighttime curfews, being confined to house arrest, and day after day, of being locked out of our places of worship and visiting loved ones, shame, and day after day getting the blessing of being berated and belittled by the dictator's daily press conferences, all in the name of the health advice that we never got to see, the faulty decisions that no one seems to ever recall in the longest lockdown city in the world. This is the Victoria that we are left as a legacy with, and I am angry about it, as should you be. I'm furious, in fact. That's why I'm standing for Parliament, and that's why I'm here. So, on that note, enough from me. Nicole Werner also ran in the seat of Box Hill during the 2022 Victoria election and had a 9% swing against her on the primary vote in a winnable seat for the Liberal Party. And despite that result, she's been rewarded with another pre-selection in the seat next door. Now, normally, if you have a 9% swing against you, that suggests that you're not very good on the hustings or perhaps the electorate doesn't want you. But because of the out-of-control influence of religious groups in the Victoria branch of the Liberal Party, here she is again. And so much for the Liberal Party being the party of merit that they like to keep going on about. I can't help but feel that at this point we've got to give a shout-out to our friends at the Shady Silka campaign. Hello, fellows. How are you? There's a lot of problems in the Victorian Liberal Party, and that is reflected federally. I know there's all kinds of names being thrown around for uh, David Vann's seat. Trouble is, of course, he hasn't left the Senate, so there's no vacancy for the Liberal Party to put in. Few of the names were sensible. The Warrandite by-election was an opportunity for them to show that they are listening and that they're trying to move forward and trying to be a slightly more progressive in the traditional sense of liberal progressivism. It's that 
saying attributed to Einstein, insanity is trying the same thing again and again and expecting a different result. And you can't be a power broker if you don't have any power. And they keep forgetting that. Well, I guess the issue is that she's been pre-selected by the branch membership. And this is one of those areas that is dominated by those religious groups. And the, the issue is going to be continuously that they keep putting up people that are not representative of the community in the hope that they do get in. And it's a similar situation that happened with Moira Deeming as well. So she's a conservative Christian advocate and activist, and it's not really reflective of the rest of the community's viewpoints. Exactly. And of course, uh, I suppose we should be appreciative that they did actually listen to the local branch rather than parachute her in. But if the local branch doesn't represent the locals, it's doomed as well. And Senator Jackie Lambie has referred the Australian Defence Force to the International Criminal Court in The Hague in the Netherlands. And this relates to the actions in Afghanistan where 39 Afghan civilians were killed by Australian Special Forces, but no one has been held responsible for that. And Lambie said that this was an act of last resort because the government wasn't taking her concern seriously about how the ADF operates. And she was also wanting to end the culture of secrecy and cover up in the military. And generally, governments don't want to do too much to upset the military. And that's why the Burriton report that was released in 2020 was such a breakthrough report. And that's the report that released all of the details about war crimes committed by Australian troops in Afghanistan. And there's no guarantee that the International Criminal Court will act on Jackie Lambie's submission. But in the wake of the findings against Ben Robert Smith in his recent defamation trial, it's always best if the truth comes out and those who have committed war crimes are held responsible. Jackie Lambie is probably the hardest of the senators to read. She seems to be both of the left and the right, and, and she seems to change her mind often. But as an ex-officer, I don't think she's wrong to be highlighting where the culture, where the alleged acts of a Ben Robert Smith might come from, and that if not actively encouraged, then tacitly endorsed by the senior military officials. It's important that anyone with power is held to account. Whether you're a general, whether you're a minister of the crown, whether you're a judge, whether you're a senior public service head. And that doesn't mean to say that you necessarily harass these people and stop them doing their jobs. But it does mean that if there's something wrong, they need to explain what's going on and or suffer consequences if there's wrongdoing. I'm giving Senator Lambie the benefit of the doubt here. I'm wondering how much of it is a tacit defence of Ben Robert Smith to suggest that, you know, he's innocent and he did nothing wrong and he's a true war hero, which some people have been saying. But nonetheless, I do think that she is expressing a frustration of the frontline serving officer or serving service person to higher ranking Australian officials. Whether The Hague does anything or not remains to be seen. But if it goes ahead, things might become extremely interesting in Australian defence circles. Oh, more than likely will. And the military can never be untouchable, nor can military leaders. But there is that odd nexus between political leadership and military leadership. And this just isn't the case in Australia. It's something that occurs in every country around the world. But the 
political system keeps the military happy. The military does what it has to do and usually keeps out of politics, unless you're talking about Thailand or Burma, where the military is the one that usually runs the government. But I think it will be interesting to see how all of this plays out, because generally the military hates being called out. And I think it will also be interesting to see who else is affected by all of this. And we've talked about Ben Robert Smith. But it will be interesting to see if Andrew Hasty from the Liberal Party is affected by this outcome as well. And as you said, David, the military does need to be accountable, just like anybody else in the community. But it seems like no one has been accountable for the war crimes or the allegations of war crimes that were committed against Afghan civilians. And if that ends up being the end result, well, this action by Jackie Lambie has to be commended. And it is up to the International Criminal Court to take up this case if it sees merit in it. But I can also imagine that there will be a lot of pressure placed upon it by the Australian government to possibly not proceed with it. That will almost certainly happen. And one of the trouble with an international court is that it doesn't exist in a vacuum, that it has to balance the interests of governments and countries and how much damage can it sustain or how much political capital can it spend on this type of thing. So they may decide that it's not worth the issue, but I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens. And yet there's almost certainly going to be... And yet one of the people who could potentially be involved is Governor-General David Hurley and about uh, whistleblowers. Will this force a change in how whistleblowers are treated? and a change for the better. One certainly hopes so. This is New Politics, one of the top 10 Australian politics and news commentary audio programs. You can listen to us on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Amazon Music, and you can find us at newpolitics.com.au, and you can contribute and support New Politics on Patreon. Reserve Bank has come under fire again, and this time it's for announcing that its recommendation for reducing inflation is to push the unemployment rate up. And unless there's going to be additional support for people who are unemployed, such as lifting the job seeker payments to at least the level of pensions, or if they're working towards universal service support, there's no point in doing this. And economically, this idea is straight from the neoliberalist handbook that Higher unemployment creates more competition in the jobs market and pushes wages down, which means less disposable income, less spending, and the theory is that inflation is lowered because of this. But this is exactly the cause of these problems from over the past 40 years. These processes need to be reworked according to a different economic model. And unemployment means that there's people in the community who could be working and could be using their skills in a meaningful way and a productive way, but wouldn't be able to do that. And why would we want that? And There's also OECD modelling to suggest that corporate profits have played a role in inflation, even though the Reserve Bank has refused to accept this, mainly suggesting that it's been caused by external factors such as the war in Ukraine and the recent wage rise decisions. And my feeling is that the changes to the Reserve Bank board and the leadership cannot come quickly enough. It's at least a 30-year out-of-date model. And it's all to do with keeping wages down. It's cruel. It's elitist. It's unnecessary. 
why you would have an engine that makes things better and then you'd strip out six or eight percent of its power because the energy source is a little bit cheaper whereas if it's running at full capacity you're earning enough money to afford the difference it's greed the reserve bank's out of touch the reserve bank has lost it the reforms can't come soon enough maybe it is time to abolish it and and take it back to a model where it's a true reserve bank where it is a reserve of the currency so if there's a bank collapse and then government set the interest rates or someone else sets the interest rates because it's clearly not working under at least the current board and maybe a new board due in a couple of months will fix things and we'll get in again adults into the room who who understand or at least a new chair who understand that economies are only as good as they can treat people i think it was amy ramakis the journalist who pointed out when they talk about unemployment, they're never talking about themselves. How many of them are prepared to give up their job because it's good for the economy and live on the dole or scramble and try and live on the black economy? And for a false construct too, where it can be set up so that we have full employment, high wages, livable inflation, appropriate interest rates so that we get the most out of that a good cash rate and a strong dollar that's not so strong that it uh, wipes out exports. And the Reserve Bank was created in 1960 with the sole intention of making decisions that keep inflation within that range of between 2 and 3%. And economies have always been a lot more than just inflation, but they have become increasingly more complex over the past 60 years or so. And it's probably a case where the Reserve Bank Charter or that sole intention of keeping inflation in check is no longer fit for purpose. So that's definitely one area that needs to change for the Reserve Bank. And Australia should be a much higher income economy. And But this has been lessened by policy failures over the past 30 or 40 years that have suppressed income. And Australia is still one of the better performing economies in the world. But with the amount of resources that have been exploited by mining companies, Australia should be one of the top two or three performing economies in the world, not somewhere in the middle where it is ranked at the moment. And this slow change to where we are today, I think that was fast-tracked after that horror coalition budget from 2014, which almost destroyed the economy and created the poor economic conditions just before the pandemic hit. But we've said this before, a changing world needs a new set of economic paradigms and different ways of tackling economic problems and it seems like we're still not heading down that path yet but there's always time to make the right change. Jim Chalmers is a very intelligent man especially when it comes to economics. Hopefully the politics of it won't railroad some of his ideas and that we start to get proper long-lasting positive reform over the next five years or so to undo the mess of 40 years of failed neoliberalism. And speaking of Jim Chalmers, he also made that suggestion about other ways to measure budget outcomes and national economics. And he is planning to release a measuring what matters statement towards the end of this year. And this will suggest changing the way that we look at everything within the economy. And at the moment, measuring the economy is a little bit like meat and three veg, where it's really just basic reporting, surplus good, deficit bad, inflation bad, savings good, 
spending bad and there just needs to be more nuance about whether the economy is working in the interests of people or not and Jim Chalmers was rubbished back in 2019 by Josh Frydenberg when he suggested that there needs to be a well-being index on reporting of key budget indicators just like they do in New Zealand but Jim Chalmers is treasurer now and Josh Frydenberg is not well, he's actually not in Parliament at all now. So Jim Chalmers can implement whatever he wants and he can call it whatever he wants to as well. But measuring the economy and the budget in ways that are more nuanced and reflect upon whether it's beneficial or harmful to people, that can only be a good thing. And it's surprising that it just hasn't been introduced into Australia much earlier. I think there's still that little fear of you know, the sensible right rubbishing such things. But an economy is no good if it's not improving the lives or maintaining at least the lives of the majority of the population. It's no good that rich people get richer. And I mean, super rich people get richer while everybody else is getting poorer. Put it all together, sure, and the figures look great. But when you break it down and it turns out that people are living under mortgage stress, people are struggling to pay rent, people are struggling to buy enough food for the week. But we've had 2% growth, most of which floated into the pockets of the top 2% of earners in the country. It's something that we need to look at. And it's something that we need to think past, that money for the sake of money is no good. Money's just a tool. So how do we use that tool? Do we use it to enrich the few? Or do we use it to improve everybody's life? And I think that's any wellbeing index has to start with that basic premise. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. And if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.